I'm John Atak, for anybody who doesn't know that. And um, this is my honoured guest, Dr. Stephen Moffick. Hi, Steve. Hi, everybody. And John, of course. Good to John. see you again. Couple yeah, of... it is. It's such a pleasure, isn't it? It's such good fun. A yeah, couple, if... couple of months later from last time, yeah. Yeah, and, and it feels like cheating, you know, enjoying work so much, you know, but, but there you go. <laughs> it's Yeah, yeah. Kind of a yeah. conversation, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So one of the best things in the world, I think, being able to sit and chew the fat with, with one's friends. So, yes, I put it to you that um, you, you are a social psychiatrist, and we've talked about that. Yes. And um, you have won many awards for this, and uh, another one, I think, since we last spoke. You just keep racking them up. Have you got a kind of shelf with... No, <laughs> please. <laughs> No, <laughs> but um, so I what I brought up was it was three ideas that that kind of overlap in my mind. One of them is is what is these days called mass sociogenic illness. It generally referred to as mass hysteria for a while. I, I encountered it uh, through the work of um, Dr. Kapta Ahmedova, and um, she briefly made the news some time ago when it, she was in Chechnya and there were outbreaks at both ends of Chechnya in schools of these terrible, you know, what the people experiencing them believed were poisonings. They thought that the Russians had poisoned them and they were having fits. They were projectile vomiting. They were hospitalized. There were about a hundred um, young people involved in this. And I, I read about this story and I, I wrote something about it and my editor said, oh, that's a fascinating story, but you don't know enough. So, which often happens, sadly. And yeah. um, he said, why don't you get touch, in touch with him? I'm sort of, how do I get in touch with a professor of psychology in Chechnya? So I, I looked her up and um, she'd also graduated from an American university and she still had an email address. And within 24 hours, she came back to me and over several weeks we worked out you know this thing and it, and it became it, it's a, within my book opening our minds that story but she said that a russian psychiatrist had come out and she'd had to traipse behind him and keep her mouth shut and he said oh they're all suffering from hysteria and she was like you can't do that you know hysteria is an individual diagnosis and she in fact spent two years using cognitive therapy to bring all of them out of hospital and she had to do it one by one because there wasn't another cognitive therapist in Chechnya. So they had entered into a group delusion which was so powerful that they were you know, projectile vomiting and having fits and, and this sort of thing. We then have the condition that's called folie à plusieurs and I think folie à deux is, is perhaps a more known expression where two people uh, yeah. create, live in a fantasy world together. But it can happen to a group, and this is certainly what happens in authoritarian cult groups, that, that they believe certain crazy things. We look at something like, you know, Heaven's Gate, where the men all castrated themselves as part of their folia plusieurs, as part of their belief. And then we have this idea, which, which I first encountered from Bandy Lee, who you know and have, have worked with, um, about a sort of contagion of psychosis that... that spreading out into a group of people. So I've, I've been a long preamble, but now the floor is yours, Dr. Steve. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a important and interesting subject, you know, and I was telling you that today's 9-11-01 um, anniversary, and we could probably think about this subject in relationship to that, which- Yeah, Mohammed Atta and co, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I haven't actually thought of that, and I just wrote an article about the anniversary, so I, I, I may have left something important out, but yeah, what you're bringing up, you know, we, we hear about stuff like that on and off, sort of this mass hysteria. You hear about it often on a lot with teenagers, um, that something will happen in a school, and all of a sudden, all the teenagers are upset in a certain way and overreacting. You see them in um, history of tulips and yeah, <laughs> how the black tulip, they yeah. became, and people just bought and bought. And then, you know, you see it in political movements too, I think. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get in deep trouble by particularly focusing on one of them, but. You know, we 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 do we do see that in history, and you're an expert in cults, and it's sort of like, well, is this the same thing as cults? Um, is it different in any way? Um, you know, it seems to be more of an acute phenomena that can be dealt with or dies out on its own, depending on circumstances. Whereas being part of a cult doesn't and you're part of an organization that has a leader and the leader has these cemented psychological emotional bonds that's not necessarily the case with this brief mass psychosis um, no. i think so that might be one in, important difference but mm -hmm. um and you know i i think you know that kind of mass psychosis phenomena you know, is is frightening in a way because it can seemingly come out of the blue, you know, and and obviously cause some damage. And uh, it hasn't been, I don't think, well studied. I mean, even the even the term mass hysteria, you know, hysteria used to be a official psychiatric diagnosis and was certainly talked about a lot by Freud and his colleagues in those areas. But it's no longer an official psychiatric diagnosis anyways i think part of it it was viewed as being um anti-women because it mainly got applied to women and, well, and, and hysteros they... hysteros means the womb so it's the yes exactly hysteria yeah whoops exactly so in a way it's probably better not to use that term you know with this kind of group either but um but yeah, it's 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 potentially important. And I you know, I, I, I think it fits in this whole social area where um I view that we have a variety of social psychopathologies. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, simply that goes that includes cults, racism, anti-Semitism, burnout, and so forth. And we could probably add this on too, you know, and it's an area that doesn't have an organized way of conceptualizing it. I mean, I'm not exactly suggesting we develop a classification of social psychopathologies, though I will suggest we should. <laughs> but, 
I, I think that would be an uphill battle, but we don't have a good conception of what's happening in a social sphere that is generally harmful to lots of people um, and even harmful to the perpetrators themselves. And what you brought up might be another uh, another one of the classifications that would fit if that was ever conceptualized and, and brought to some more general study and understanding. I, th I mean, I think the degree of fervor that is incited becomes very significant. So I was, I don't think I, I've ever been particularly fervent. That's you know probably my failing. So, so when I was involved in Scientology and I realized that Ron Hubbard had told lies, I was done. It, you know, it, it was, it was a matter of time. It took a few months, but, but then I found that when I talked with, you know, fellow believers, that, that they had all sorts of justifications and excuses not to admit the evidence. You know, the cognitive dissonance was too strong for them. Mm -hmm. And that became a lifelong fascination, you know, that's 40 years ago, that, you know, how much, how much are we responsive to reasoning and, and how much are we basing, you know, our, our activities on feelings of knowing, on the sense of certainty, on the, the certainty that our belief is true. And when we look at Muhammad Atta and the other 18 members of, of the um, Al-Qaeda team that, uh, you know, performed the 9-11 massacre, then we find, you know, that it's not quite what people expect. They expect kind of unwashed, uneducated, weak-willed people who've been pushed into doing this. And of course, when we look at the lives of, of that group of people, they were largely European educated. Um, they had degrees and even master's degrees from Western Europe universities. They had not gone to madrasas, not one of them was trained in a, in a madrasa. Um, they were alienated. They, they were born into a world that didn't accept them. So, and in most of the cases I've looked at, and I looked at far too many, they tend to be second generation immigrants whose parents are not fervent Muslims. And they go against their own parents by saying, well, you've, you've abandoned the faith. And they then come to believe certain things which are interpretations of the Quran. And the Quran makes it very clear that suicide is not permitted and that the murder of innocence is not permitted. There are surahs that deal with those two points. Those are pushed aside within the Wahhabi or Salafi belief, which is that tiny portion, about half a percent of Muslims belong to this, but it gave us Al-Qaeda and it gave us ISIS, ISIL, Daesh, whatever we call it. And people, you know, as Voltaire didn't actually say, people who, who believe absurdities will tend to commit atrocities. He says something far more complicated than that, but, you know, I'm, I'm with that thought that if you can get a group of people to believe that by murdering thousands of civilians they will immediately on their death enter paradise where they will be gifted with i think it's you get 70 horis each and um of course in 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 their heaven you're allowed to do what you like with the horis i think um this bizarre notion that this you know fantasy 
that, that then propels people to commit these actions. I, I mean, you know, to put the balance in when uh, the Crusades began at the end, of, very end of the 11th century, a pope declared that if you had the intention to kill a Muslim, then even if you didn't manage to do it, you would go to heaven with with that intention, which kind of, you know, the thou shalt not kill commandment was pushed aside. It was, well, thou shalt not kill people who believe something you don't believe, you know. Um, and and humanity is lost. We dehumanize the targets. Um, I'm, I'm sure that Muhammad Atta and his his friends never sat down and thought about the, the children who would be left behind without parents. Their intention was to create a, a war, to, to make, to, to achieve exactly what they did achieve, which was to make the non-Muslim community hate the Muslim community, not focus on those militant Salafis or Wahhabis who had performed this act, but to generalize it, hate Muslims, persecute Muslims, which would then cause a pushback against Christendom and, and the Western world. And that was tremendously successful. You know, when um, on 9-11, there were just less than 480 people involved in the four groups that were lumped together as Al-Qaeda. Within two years, there were 35,000 people in Al-Qaeda. So as a military strategy, it was incredibly effective, arousing hatred in, in Westerners. You know, I, I mean, I, I, and I believe the majority of the Arab population of the US at that time were Christian, but they were mm. most certainly persecuted as a consequence of being identified with this group of 19 people. Um, so that again is a kind, I hadn't really thought about this, but that again creates a folly applusiere, a madness of the group in the opponents, you know, and so people start, um, you know, rather than seeking reconciliation, they want revenge, and which led us to the Afghan war with about 150,000 deaths and the invasion of Iraq with about three quarters of a million deaths um, as acts of revenge rather than, you know, looking to some way to to settle this madness and to isolate the actual criminals, to deal with the people who are actually doing it rather than saying, well, you know, you've got dark skin, therefore, or, you know, um, so, so yeah. 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 You know, I, you know, speaking of revenge, you know, the most common cause that we think of from the psychiatric side is humiliation hmm. and people feel humiliated. Doesn't matter how, smart you are um if you feel humiliated you tend to want to have some sort of revenge and so often that's behind these these kinds of movements it probably was a major factor in the nazis becoming so powerful because Absolutely. germany was humiliated after world war one because of the terms and how their economy was growing between the wars or not and then falling apart and hitler promised you know, things would be better. Um, it's, but, you know, it's from the United States point of view, what you wonder going back to that time you mentioned is how well did we understand that this could happen and that there were some danger signs? I don't think we understood that very well. You know, I don't think 
usually our government cross-cultural understanding has been suspect and there yes there was a psychiatrist involved um a great psychiatrist named gerald post, post. Yeah. but his his focus was on individual leaders not necessarily the social phenomena that you're mentioning that's associated with them so yeah. he, he you know he got part of the equation but not not the social part of about that so it's an important lesson to, to take out of 9-11-01 you know why did we miss this potentially happening but the phenomena is very widespread as um i was trying to mention early on and it goes into mundane situations well i wouldn't call them mundane that's wrong it's not even mundane for me um you know in, in in america the national football league just started yesterday and there was a book many years ago about called the madness of sports um and i think you have that in your soccer games your football games i don't you know, know what that, you're talking about Stephen. we're always yeah. very polite and friendly at soccer games <laughs> you know and it's groups of fans getting together and if they're if their team if they feel their team is cheated they can have can have riots in the stands but it's those social bonds that are so close and kind of making up in part for deficits so that if your team wins you know you feel better and you feel like you're part of a group you're not lonely or alienated or isolated and so there's much good that could come out of that potentially those those bonds that bring sports fans together um but i even think probably the danger of that is even erupting in women's sports too it's just a natural side effect we don't want to happen in sports um mm -hmm. but i think it's just an under indicating on how vulnerable we are as a people for going awry socially in in groups that are can be as destructive as they can be constructive and it's so important to watch for that and find ways to either head pre prevent this kind of stuff or head it off or at least recognize when it's when it's happening and you get this whole world nowadays of disinformation and and cultish stuff on on the internet and and how do you break through that, you know, to, again, head off, you know, dangerous things from happening, you know, and, and after the 9-11 bombing, you're absolutely right that um, Muslims were blamed, uh, certainly uh, President Trump mentioned that, but also pulled in the picture was Jews. There was a conspiracy theory, as there always is, there about always Jews is, yeah. causing that with zero evidence and still zero evidence but it, it's a way of putting the blame on somebody else and 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 getting people together on something that they'll readily believe because Jews have always been blamed so they can be blamed for this too so it wasn't even only Islamophobia it was anti-semitism at mm -hmm. the time you know so yeah and and general sort of anti-arab feeling um I mean, yeah, yeah it, it, of course, um, one of one an idea that we take from Judaism is the idea of the scapegoat, the idea that that you can write the sins of the community and pin them onto a goat and send the goat out into the wilderness to take your sins, and the poor goat, you know, what's the goat ever done? This is so so wrong. 
And unfortunately, absolutely, as you say, um, the, the Jews for many centuries have been scapegoated and whenever anything goes wrong. So, so, you know, looking at, you know, Germany that, that by 19 January 33, when Hitler came to power, there were more marriages between Christians and Jews than there had ever been in the German states. It, you know, it, you know, particularly in, in say Hamburg that, you know, the, the communities were getting on the, so many Jewish soldiers had fought and died, given their lives for, for Austrian German cause in the first world war. But here they were a target again, you know, just as they had been during the crusades and in, you know, pogroms in Eastern Europe, and this idea of having a scapegoat, having an innocent party that you can blame so that you can express these dark feelings that, that we all have to some degree, this, as you say, this response to humiliation, the, the, to, to, to take revenge. Um, there is a passage in the Bible, which I believe says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And I think it's a good idea to leave vengeance up to God. And I'm an agnostic, so <laughs> yeah. um, we, we don't need to other. An eye. Yeah. an eye for an eye, yeah, and a goat for a goat. Um, that, that, that we call people who like sport or music fans mm -hmm. is of itself interesting, this abbreviation of the word fanatic. And well. we go back to the Roman Empire and we find that the chariot races, you had the blues and the greens, these two teams. And yeah. you go, oh, yeah, they're sports fans. They like chariot racing. Yeah, they were sports fans, but they elected emperors. They were the most powerful group within ancient Rome for a period of time. Um, just imagine if all, all the soccer hooligans got to elect Boris Johnson. Oh, hang on a minute. Um, we seem to have made that mistake. The, this passion, the way that... that we come to believe things against all reason. And for me, it's very simple that if our beliefs are antisocial, if they're anti-human, if they target other people, then they're wrong. Unless we're targeting the people who are guilty, the individuals who have committed crimes against society or indeed against humanity, that's fine. But when we start to generalize, we, we had our, a, the 7-7 bombing in London. And afterwards, a, a close friend of mine said, Muslims should apologize for this. And I said, um, do you think Christians should apologize for Waco? Mm. Because we're in the same sort of place. We have an aberrant, the branch of Idians, an aberrant, tiny sect that have performed this. They didn't do this with the consensus of, you know, the, the whole Christian faith. Um, and that that's another part of it, that kind of generalizing and, and, you know, blaming anybody that's, you know, a different color, a different gender, a, you know, a different anything in their beliefs and their appearance from us. And I think going forward, if we are to preserve the human environment, and we're not doing a very good job of that, that we are going to have to stop this hatred. We are going to have to stop this xenophobia, this fear of strangers. Um, yeah. I was very interested uh, doing some work a year or two back on um, when when did um, racism 
come into Western society. And um, uh, William Du Bois, the brilliant black anthropologist, somewhere around about 1900, coined this phrase, the religion of whiteness. And um, chasing it back, it would appear you can date it. In 1676, I think, you have Bacon's Rebellion in New England, as it used to be then. And the slaves, the black slaves and the white servants who were treated in much the same way, got together. And for months, there was a rebellion which took many lives and had to be settled by the British Army. Um, and at that point, it was realized and laws started to be made that because now blacks were no longer heathens because the Quakers and other groups had started to convert them to Christianity, they couldn't be looked down upon for not being Christians. And so, and they also had the white servants who had to, you didn't want them getting together with the black slaves and making trouble. So they had to have some sense of separateness and that separateness was color. So at the end of the 17th century, and, and there doesn't really seem to have been that, certainly in the Roman Empire, there doesn't seem to have been any concern about color. I mean, it was a dreadful and vicious regime, but at least they weren't racist, you know. Um, and it, it's become so significant in our time that, that in the US you have people who consider themselves to be Nazis, who are actually of, say, Polish descent. And they haven't realized that Hitler had the same contempt for the Slavic peoples that he had for the Jews, and indeed wished to enslave the Slavic people. I'm told that the words Slav and slave are in fact cognate in the English language. They come from the same root. We see the opposite of that with Putin at the moment, that, that this is pan-Slavism. This is the other aspect that, that when the Aryan Germanic ideas came up just after 1900, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the same time pan-Slavism is born. And so they have this idea that, that Ukraine has broken away from the, the greater Slavic empire and must be returned to it. You know, they tried to get Georgia back in 2008 and thankfully failed. But these are beliefs. These are ideas, you know, and genetically they don't hold up. We've, the mixture of, of our genes is is wild you know we've we've got you know bits of genghis khan and, and bits of neanderthal in us this idea of a pure white race or a pure black race or any pure race is a nonsense that there's one species one race humanity and we're part of it yeah exactly and that's what we want to get to right mm. i mean 99.9 percent .9 probably plus um we have so much in common you know, which is interesting when people want to trace their genealogy, because then you're going back to the difference, which I understand potentially helps with your identity, but um, it it's also makes people separate, you know, and but behind all this, behind the humiliation is this kind of inborn tendency we have to fear who and what is different. Mm -hmm. um, dangerous and so to overcome that you can respond with fight or flight and if you get more power the fight works out for you and you find a target to blame and um you empower your own group and 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 that's an inbuilt tendency but 
we do have the cerebral cortex, our frontal lobes that can overcome that if it's dealt with early on. And often, you know, with with this with the skin color issue, I I think it's complicated. And in a way, the history is much longer, just like it is with Jews. But once upon a time, I did some anthropology work, um, kind of wondering, what was there something about dark skin color that added something on that made the prejudice more intense? Because it seemed to me, in most places in the world, the darker your skin color, the more you were discriminated against. Um, most everywhere, Africa, Japan, take any country. And in the deep south, I mean, there are blues songs. Uh, Robert Johnson sings, I'm going to get me a brown-skinned woman, yeah. meaning I want a paler-skinned woman. So it was a prejudice that, that, that very sadly ran into that community as well. It's always fascinated me, the idea that if you have somebody who is part white, part black, that they're called black. That, that they become, you know, it used to be mulattoes and quadroons and octoroons and all of this. But, yeah. you know, why that? And and, and you get somebody like um, Saint-Georges, the, the incredible 18th century French composer, whose father was a, a nobleman and whose mother was a black slave. And he was held to be the greatest swordsman and the greatest violinist in France. Mozart lifted a whole piece for one of his violin concertos from um, St. George. And uh, this poor man couldn't marry because he yeah. was a member of the nobility and a member of the slave. You yeah. Know. Yeah. So yeah. sad. Yeah. And I, what I'm going to say, I know is, has been quite controversial, but I think there's an association psychologically with darkness, even in skin color, with the nighttime mm. where things are more scary for people. And mm -hmm. so I think that's almost automatically infused. And so when we talk to about skin colors as being black and white, we're hurting the darker skinned people and mm -hmm. we're helping the white people because black gets associated with more negative things mm -hmm. psychologically and white is the opposite. So why are we using these terms that are harmful? And then the other term, which to me is 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 quite unhelpful, but I know sometimes I get blasted for this. Is we're people of color, um, meaning everybody but quote whites are people of color. Well, whites also have skin color. So why are you drawing that distinction? Because ultimately, we want to get where you mentioned. We want to be of people of a human race more connected. I actually feel we have to go towards having a main part of our identification, almost the last thing we say about our identity, be something that refers to everybody. Like, I'm a Jewish American earthling. The last term is something that identifies you with everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we have to see that link um which could soften hopefully you know these distinctions and separation based on fear and power of course we have a long way to go to try to do that but i think that's the ultimate goal to find ways 
where we feel connected with everybody. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, 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 the last comment I want to make in reference to what you said is, when is forgiveness appropriate to mm, so often the wounds so that we don't keep doing the same thing over and over in revenge and and uh, forgiveness is difficult um you know if you've been hurt real bad it actually ends up probably hurting you more mentally and physically than it does uh, the person who's hurt you but but nevertheless um you know it prevents resolution of of conflicts and going back to world war ii in a way the ending for germany after world war ii was so much different than world war one and i wouldn't say maybe i wouldn't say the west other the western um ally powers forgave germany that's probably too strong but they made sure that they could recover economically um and and it worked even israel and germany have become partners afterwards so you don't have to keep blaming the other over history there's ways to break that up that comes down to in, individuals in the intergenerational transmission of trauma but there's social transmission intergenerationally of trauma also and mm -hmm. so we have to that in mind and how to break that kind of transmission absolutely i i, I was very moved by by an account of of a, a meeting in northern ireland there's a woman who's um she was a, a member of the ira the provisional irish republican army i should say and she had been involved with a a, a group that had captured a a policeman um, tied him into the driving seat of a van put explosives in the van and then sent the van off and it had blown up now she was not directly involved in that particular action but she was a part of the group that did it mm -hmm. and it changed her mind she she went you know what a, a truly despicable thing to do and she left the IRA. Years later, the Truth and Reconciliation Movement arrived, which I don't think was very successful in South Africa, where I believe it began. I think that's a mess. But in Northern Actually, Ireland, I think it, it was very helpful. And it was largely the work of women saying, you know, we don't want to do this anymore. This is this is crazy. And this woman found herself to meeting with the wife of the man who'd been killed. And she was seized with panic that that here she was in the room with this woman who she'd had something to do with wronging so badly. And her amazement, the woman embraced her. And that's the only way forward. If we keep fighting, if we keep saying, well, your granddad hurt my yeah. granddad, then we're never going to get anywhere. And, and there is a there's this current movement which which does concern me where called white guilt and this idea that that we are as white people we are the beneficiaries of centuries of oppression now in some cases this is absolutely true 
some of the richest families in the world. We've recently, there's a, a, a broadcaster called Laura Trevelyan, uh, who works for the BBC, and she and her family, very wealthy family, the Trevelyans, uh, have given, I think it was £100,000 to, to one of the West Indian islands because they held slaves there. And I'm first thing I'm going to say is that's a tiny amount of money. That's not enough to buy a house in this country. So, but the second thing is, to the extent that their wealth is based upon slavery, they should be giving up all of it. If they really want to be honorable, they should be saying, we'll give all of this up. But who are you giving it to? And who's descended from whom? You know, we have this awful conundrum that because the slave masters kept the house slaves and they would fall pregnant, but the field slaves would not because they were malnourished to such an extent that they couldn't um, bear children. So the population was always being swelled by people who were descended from the very worst slavers. You know, it's worth saying that in, yeah. in this country, 400,000 people in the 18th century signed petitions to end slavery. It was not a popular thought. It's also fair to say, I looked into this in some detail, there's a, a historian called um, Linda Holly, I think, who, who wrote a book called Captives, where she talks about um, Europeans who were held slaves, particularly British people who were held slaves um, within, and there, there were about a million white slaves held in Africa, um, particularly you know, among uh, Muslim communities. Oh dear, I should, probably shouldn't have said that. Um, let's get a revenge on them. Um, and the, but the thing that really struck me was when she talked about the conditions of um, British troops in India and the, you know, the horrible colonial Raj and all of that, that it was against military law to flog sepoys who, who were native soldiers. That you couldn't give them a flogging. But British soldiers would be flogged to death. This happened. And so the, the horrible point is that those in power have mistreated those who do not have power throughout human history. Mm -hmm. And to say mm -hmm. that is white power, you know, or, or black power, and then to get into the whole confusion of n nobody white was able to go inland in Africa to take slaves until quinine had been stolen from the Spanish, which I think 1848, somewhere around there, suddenly the anti-malarial drug is available. But malaria was so dangerous that, that Europeans didn't go to the interior of Africa. So all of the slaves were brought to them by African tribes who'd captured them and would sell them. Yeah. And you have you know, the Viceroy of Weida by Bruce Chatwin, um, or a Cobra Verde by Werner Herzog, which are about this dreadful period in history. So my formulation is that the people that we need to be careful of are the people who are inciting hatred for whatever reason. The people are saying, we are better than you because our ancestors suffered, um, or we should be superior to you. That superiority, I think, should be based on merit and on compassion rather than like being Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Elon Musk and having a lot of money and power. We should look to people, you know, and this is within the Jewish, the Muslim, the Christian, the Buddhist, 
the Jain, whatever tradition you like, we should look to people who are compassionate and decent and love humanity as our, as our heroes, rather than people who, who foment hatred, hate mongers. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Although I would put a qualification on how you're using hate or hatred. Mm. I, I think there are situations where hate or hatred is appropriate. It's I, I would call that indignity, and and I think it's a it's a different quality. But but I think you know there there is one can be righteously upset about nine eleven. That's for sure. Yeah. If that becomes hatred, rather well, it's than what you do indignation. It's what you do with the hatred? Yeah, it's what you do with the hatred. You know, so the hatred can be a clue to you about the intensity of your feeling, um, and what are you going to do with it? So. Let's say I hate Hitler, even though he's long gone, but mm -hmm. I hate him. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do with it? If I want to follow what you just said, I'm going to want to work to prevent any such Holocaust, mass genocide tendencies and so forth um, that I can. Mm -hmm. And I do try to do that. You know, the I don't like to I don't like to talk about my awards but since you mentioned at the beginning the award i'm getting is the abraham halpern humanitarian award mm -hmm. and i'm going to have to do a lecture <laughs> to receive it and um the, the, the title i've come up with so far is pretty awkward but it, it'll illustrate what i'm getting at um is this an, an impossible dream the social integration of humanism, religion, and spirituality. Mm. And so what, what I'm getting at there, well, first of all, it's a playoff on, on the impossible dream from the Man of La Mancha play. Yeah, you there's know, always yeah. a song involved with your lectures, isn't there, Stephen? To dream the impossible dream. <laughs> yeah. And one, two reasons I, I, I picked it's it. It's so Rusty can sing it, I know. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> that's one of them and then it lists all these things he wants to overcome and of course he's depicted as delusional in in the play and sometimes i am too it's like you know can we overcome these 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 social problems and um you know religions can cause the same kind of discrimination and so could atheists and so forth there's there's an essence on the bottom of this that and you've mentioned it, that we have to reinforce and look for these people wherever we can to make them our leaders and our joiners, um, because we have this human tendency. It's part of human nature to end up doing these horrendous things. And unless we realize that, accept it and work um, to change that in how we raise kids and how we work politically, We've got so many better ways to destroy ourselves nowadays, ranging from climate change to nuclear bombs, you know, um, um, biological pollution um, or toxins. There's just, we can much more easily do that. And if we don't, what's the author's name? Uh, Steven Pinker. If we, mm -hmm. if we don't try to pull more on our better angels as his book describes um 
And there's a movement in the United States called the Braver Angels that tries to bring people together who have different political points of view so they can see what more they have in common rather than difference. And, you know, if, if we go, don't go that route, um, humanity's in, in, in grave danger nowadays. So, you know, um, but I do think we can, we can get more toward our, our better angels, our mm. better selves. Um, it's actually the whole point of the Jewish High Holy Days that are coming up soon. I guess those are in the back of my mind too. One of the things you're supposed to do as a person during Yom Kippur to, uh, starting with Rosh Hashanah actually, is you're supposed to think about how you can turn toward your better self. Mm. Um, what did you do wrong the past year and how are you gonna correct, not only correct that, but move to a better, higher way of being a person. And mm. I think I think that's everybody's challenge. I, I agree with you. And and I I think sadly we've become unusual in, in that we are two people who do believe that there are enough tools in the toolkit to solve the problem. I think so many people have lost hope. Um, talking with people who are dealing with with cults the the feeling throughout the 40 years that i've been involved with this for most people is you know the, the, we're, we're not going to stop it we, we're, we're managing to deal with about one percent of the problem and the problem has grown worse and worse but yeah. um you know this terrible random word cult um meaning a, a group that um is devoted to a leader and or a doctrine that's all it means but the yeah. you know we we society has always been a set of interlocking cults and occasionally somebody comes up with a good and useful idea and that you know you can have a <laughs> yeah. cult that follows that useful idea and away we go um but but the the more extreme behaviors that, that where one had expected you know, probably from you know, when I was um, coming to adulthood in the late 60s, early 70s, I think there really was a, an aspiration towards a society without war. Uh, and it wasn't just in the hippie movement that, that that was happening. And I think we we've seen that devastated that, you know, by, by so much, you know, so you know, Vietnam seemed to be the end of something dreadful but it 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 didn't stop and the, you know the balance shifted and in fact the you know in around about 1900 80% of the casualties of war were soldiers by 2000 80% of the casualties of war were civilians um and the old medieval form of warfare which was you know the soldiers go and fight during the fighting campaign which is not winter of course um, that there were sort of rules. There were rules that were set down. Now we're seeing the Russians destroying the crops in Ukraine. And this is going to lead to famine yeah. in the coming year. And we're in this bizarre state where this is World War Three, whether we like it or not. There's a proxy war being fought by NATO. And how yeah. to stop that from escalating is you know, extraordinary was extraordinarily difficult but i agree with you that that by focusing on how to improve ourselves 
Um, Philip Zimbardo, the great Philip Zimbardo, launched the Heroic Imagination Project, which, which I'll recommend to anybody who's watching, which is to bring out the hero in yourself, to bring out what's best in you. Yeah, he, he's, a, he's a great example because there's something that preceded that project, which you probably know about. Um, and I could connect this to myself if I remember to do so, but his earlier project had to do, it's called the Stanford Prison Experiment. Yeah, 1971, um, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, he brought Stanford students together, talk about smart people, they weren't. They, they, I'm going to stop you. They weren't Stanford students. They were actually recruited from a pool of university students with the idea that, that not no two of them would know each other before they went in. Um, so it, it was done in the basement at Stanford University. But sorry, I I I am deeply steeped in this particular thing because it's so relevant to the work I do. Yeah, I won't say too much about it because you know the 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 guard group then started to harass um, the students in prison and Zimbardo sort of piled onto that and it took his fiance, um, Maslach, I forget her first name, who's Catherine, been a scholar. Yeah. She's been the main scholar about burnout over the years. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she said, if we're going to marry, you have to stop this experiment. Um, what you're doing is horrible. And it was on the sixth you know, he day. Proved, it was on he the sixth day. Point. Oh. Yeah, he proved a point, but the point was already proven before that. We already knew that under authority, people can deteriorate in their in their values. You know, so I I, I think in a way that led him in this direction of being a better angel with the heroic heroic hero, imagination. Project. Yeah, uh, that, that you mentioned, um, which is great. And one of the good aspects about that, I think it goes beyond just becoming a hero in a crisis like the first responders in 9-11. Probably all of them could be said to be heroes. Absolutely. But we need that more in everyday life, that people will take chances and chances that might hurt themselves in some ways to do what's necessary and right ranging from whistleblowers to raising your hand at a meeting and saying this doesn't sound right and so forth. So mm -hmm. it's a beautiful recovery on him, his part, a turn for the better that I just brought up. So, you know, he's, he's a great model for going wrong, but coming out right. And that's something all of us should try to think about. Mm -hmm. the, the connection that came to my own night about myself because you mentioned the Vietnam War and so forth is I was in medical school at the time of the Vietnam War and I think by the second year all of us started to think what's going to happen when we finish medical school um, are we going to be drafted into the army right out of medical school or what mm -hmm. and Lots of us started to panic, uh, as did I. I did not want to be drafted into the army um, at the time, not because it, a war was going on, but because I didn't think I didn't think my general medical knowledge was going to be adequate to be put in a situation like that. 
So there, there were there were two other choices. One was I could become a conscientious conscientious objector. Uh, my father was a lawyer. I asked him about it. He said, "Yeah, I can help you get out." And the third was this plan called the Barry Plan. You could apply for it in any of the armed forces division, and if you got in, you didn't have to serve until you finished your specialty training, mine being psychiatry, and then you would owe the army two years after that. And so as time went on, I said, okay, I'll do the CO, the conscientious objector. And it got closer to midnight. And when you had a mail this in, I said, I can't do this. I'm not against all wars. I'm against this war. Like I told you about hate, I think sometimes wars have to be appropriate because we're not ready to do without them. It's, it's a question of which ones are necessary and what's your, your goal with the war. So I, I, I put in for the Barry plan. I got in. I owned the Army two years. It was a revelatory sort of experience, a great learning experience. And I actually have ended up being proud I served in the army. Um, so, but the moral and ethical decision to get there was 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 not easy. And I, I, I think it's, for me at least, it's not so simple. It's because of human nature, gang. Um, it's not, it's unrealistic to say in the near future, we're not gonna have any more wars. Mm. It's, it's just not gonna happen, um, but we can go toward having less wars. I mean, in the situation in Ukraine that you mentioned, it seemed pretty obvious to me, even though I don't follow things as well as you do, but when the Russians massed on the border of Ukraine for months, they weren't there for fun. <laughs> you know, they were waiting to see what the United States and, and the West was going to do. I think they could have been headed off. and We would have never had this war what did we miss then you know that 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 we've got to learn out of this that maybe even could be applied now so because we're in this really kind of stagnation now i think i think the united states and its allies can turn the corner with this if 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 they want to provide more weapons that'll help ukraine but then there's political issues and fear of nuclear weapons being used and so forth. But, um, but this all, I think this all could have been prevented, you know, so. I think so too. And I think it, it could be brought to an end now, but um, Anthony Blinken this week said that the U S has spent $43 billion in Ukraine so far. Um, that's a, an incredible amount of money that could have been used to help people that could have been used to mend corrupt justice systems to bring education to the world to to make hospitals to do all sorts of lovely things and instead it, it's being poured into this this conflict which yeah. has actually been going on since what 2014 um with with nato yeah. not wanting to be involved um yeah I, I i you know i've come to the conclusion and and that that this is a war that can't be won this is a that there will be stalemate because russia is hugely rich and hugely powerful and 
yes. I think within a week of launching the war on the 24th of February last year, Putin was talking about using nuclear weapons. And if, you know, short range nuclear yeah. weapons are deployed there, then what's the response to that? How, how do you do anything to that? And as Putin is, yeah. it's something you see in occasionally, thankfully not always, but, but in, in so-called cult groups, the Jim Jones effect, when, when the leader knows, or, or Marshall Applewhite, when the leader knows that they are nearing death, they decide to take the group with them. And uh, Hitler, mm -hmm. the, you know, a month before the end of the war, Admiral Dönitz and um, Goering both went to Hitler and said, we've got to stop. And Hitler said, yeah. the German people deserve to die. And a million lives were lost in that last month. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I fear that Putin understands that if he doesn't win or you know, come to a draw, that, that he personally will end up like Mussolini hanging from a lamppost. So he's got a lot invested yeah. in this. I think that the back door is actually China. I think that by resolving trade deals with China, that the only person that Putin will listen to is, is Xi Jinping. And yeah. there are moves in that direction at the moment, but- Some hope there, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. what on earth would happen if, if Trump were reelected? Because I yeah. imagine he would stop any aid to Ukraine and Probably. Know, up the um, the saber rattling with China. Though, having said, you know, having said that, I was criticised roundly by a Trump supporter the other week in the comments, and uh, because I've never said anything nice about Donald Trump, I don't like his hair. It's true, so I can't say anything nice about I'll that. I'll say something nice. Go he on, at least do it. Got vaccination process started in the united states late but he got it started yeah <laughs> so. despite what he'd said against it and, and despite having yeah. had andrew wakefield the great anti-vaxxer actually at his inauguration party um and said what a great man he was but it, yeah i think he was also right to focus on the, the china problem as an economic mm. problem i think that was mm -hmm. sensible to say you know, we've let them get away with this for so long and we should be boosting our own manufacturing. Um, you know, I, I've long thought that rather than having special economic zones where you have pretty much slaves working all around the Pacific Rim, that, that we should use robotization in our own countries to build things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and make offers that are like, you know, we won't trade with you unless you pay your workers the same as we pay ours, rather than this yeah. constant, you know, it's so like the 19th century with the abuse of China, which yeah. is, I think most Westerners don't realize that for the Chinese, as for the North Koreans, their perception of the West is rather different than our own, you know, sense of ourselves that, you know, the two opium wars, the Boxer Rebellion that the Chinese were tremendously oppressed by the European nations and a little bit at the end by, by the US. Yeah. And, and that and, resentment, and, that hatred carries on. Yeah, and they were humiliated by the West back in history too. Yeah, you're, you're talking about an important way to bring people together, which is economics from individuals on up to groups. Mm. You have to have some economic security it's one of our basic needs. So yeah, you want to play upon that because because that could certainly help bring, you know, nations together rather than separate and and 
certainly I think with our knowledge of technology and growing food nowadays, there's there's enough for nowadays there's enough for everybody in the world. Yeah. But distribution and helping the countries of people that are too far behind, you know, that's that's the challenge. But we mm. could do it. Yeah, and, and if we weren't spending the money on, you know, the trillion dollars that was spent on Iraq for to for achieve sure. nothing, you know. Yeah, the United States has this tendency to keep fighting in wars that are unwinnable or they're not winning. You got Vietnam, you got Afghanistan, and now maybe, hopefully not, Ukraine and Russia. I mean, mm -hmm. we just somehow we don't know how to get out of these situations or prevent ourselves from getting into them in the first place. But we don't have a track record of very well getting out of these sort of conundrums between countries. Yeah. So I think we've we've probably solved most of the world's problems in the last hour. <laughs> I got a solution, another solution. Ah, because of, please. Before we stop, you know, I don't I don't know if you mentioned this before we got on the air or afterwards, which is Jazz and John Coltrane. So, oh, yeah. you know, so my favorite recording of John Coltrane, the black saxophonist on the United States is a love supreme. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what we're trying to drive toward. You know, how do you how do you love other people? And um, but it's jazz in general that I want to mention. If there's anything that has been able to bring diverse people together in the United States, but in the world, even in Russia, it's jazz. Mm -hmm. And and it's a model of people working together. It's music where you have some structure, but a lot of improvisation is needed. Leadership can shift from group to group. Um, and it's been a major success of, of Black Americans in the United States with involvement as time went on with with other cultural groups and then it spread around the world you know it was so threatening actually to russia at a certain time that it was prohibited but and in nazi germany the chinese loved it in the 1930s not anymore but but they loved it then and really you could almost pick every country in the world so I think, and, and music itself is a healing force. So, Absolutely. you know, there are ways to bring people together of diverse backgrounds and power and, and jazz is one. And I'd, I'd suggest we keep that in mind. Um, it's not an easy music necessarily to quickly like because it's complex, um, at least some of it's complex, but there are easy ways to get into it like say the music of Dave Brubeck or Louis Armstrong. And I would recommend these great jazz musicians to everybody. And, and if you could ever see jazz live, you could just see how people play off of one another and trust one another um, and love one another. So that's, that's my recommendation for today. I think that's really, really significant. And let's point to us specific John Coltrane track, which is called Resolution, which is what uh, yeah, we're looking yeah, for, yeah. which is a wonderful piece. Um, the, in Ken Burns Jazz, there's, there's one of the um, white jazz critics says, you know, I was brought up in the Deep South to believe that black people were subhuman. 
And um, then one night I went into a club and I saw Louis Armstrong. And I realized this was the first time I'd actually seen a genius. Uh-huh. And uh, my whole view of the world changed. Armstrong was was asked at one point, he was said to him at one point, this is a black music. And he looked at the person interviewing. He <laughs> said, well, what about Bix Beiderbeck? <laughs> it's like, yeah, and from exactly. quite early on, jazz became a Jewish music as well. You know, how much Klezmer had to do with it, I don't know. But oh, yeah. Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, so many, you know, and, and so many of the standards, of course, of, of jazz were written by Jews. Um, yeah. In fact, um, Cole Porter was about the only major writer of standards who wasn't Jewish, you know, with Bert Gershwin and um, Irving Berlin and, and on and on. So it, I agree with you. Look how Louis Armstrong progressed in making the music attractive to everybody. He mm-hmm. started with really complex playing. And then over time, he got his music to be more popular. He sang. Um, he sang from Hello, Dolly. Um, what a Wonderful World was a hit song for him. He found ways to popularize it. Got criticized for that. <laughs> like you're being too white, you're being honky by popularizing music. No, he brought people together. He could still play as complex as he wanted to at time, but he's he's another great model of how you can progress um, to helping people more generally and not having to use all your scholarly knowledge to do so you've got you keep that scholarly knowledge but you apply it you do you apply it more broadly you know to the world absolutely and and i I think um, i mean in the 50s the biggest selling jazz albums were were the three albums that um, armstrong and ella fitzgerald made together and i cannot recommend them too highly the 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 relaxed and friendly atmosphere that Armstrong was able to generate. A Hello Dolly is really funny because they were making an album and they were short by a few minutes and somebody said, oh, here, play this. And they recorded Hello Dolly. They went off on tour and it became a massive international hit and they didn't know how to play it because they just played it once in the studio. <laughs> so they had to learn this this song that they'd had a hit with. But, but yeah, I mean, he he... He was an exuberant man. I, I recently, um, a correspondent of mine, um, sent me <laughs> this this thing about um, Louis Armstrong advertising laxatives, and I'd never heard about <laughs> this. And there you can find it. There's a picture of Armstrong sat on the, the privy holding up a pack of this laxative that he takes. <laughs> what an incredible man! <laughs> Just <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, I had heard he had that challenge, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know there was a whole commercial and stuff that yeah. came out of it. Yeah. But <laughs> and and he comes from nowhere. He he's uh, you know a very poor child who's who's sent to reformatory yeah. when he's what eight years old for firing a gun in the street, and he he works for a coal merchant at the age of eleven, and and is they they're a Jewish coal merchant, let's say. And they're so pleased with this wonderful, ebullient young man. They say, look, we want to give you something. What would you like? And he went to the music shop and pointed at the cornet. And word has yeah. it that he just picked the thing up and started playing it. You know, and from yeah. there became really the, the fount out of which jazz, you know, of course, as Buddy Bolden and other people before him, uh, Fats Waller. But I, you know, jazz comes around when, when he begin scat singing 
he develops the whole way of singing in jazz instead of people going the moon is blue and i love you you've got this incredible thing which everybody will uh, impersonate a lady day of course manages to get his trumpet tones and, and sing those just amazing stuff so yeah, rush out and buy those things and make the world a better place that's what we think yes <laughs> great Thank you. thanks so much Stephen. um we'll, yeah. we'll come back for a rematch in a couple of months time if that's all right um, yeah yeah i very much enjoy these conversations whatever comes up <laughs> yeah it's good yeah. Good. So, and, and thanks to everybody for taking time with us. And let, let me add a little note at the end here, which, which is a large part of my audience are former Scientologists for some reason. And um, because I've been pontificating on the subject for so many decades, probably. And of course, there is a phobia of psychiatrists in, in Scientology. So I just want to point out that Stephen is a very nice man and, and there's nothing to worry about. Yeah. Fran. Thanks so yeah, much. I, I try to be. Thank you. Yeah, we do our best. Cheer boy. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.